Okay, today we will start with the Maha Sakulu Dai Sutta. This is the greater discourse to the Wandera Sakulu Dai. And this sutta is set in Rajagaha in the bamboo grove. And the opening is somewhat similar to the opening of the last sutta that we discussed, the Sandaka Sutta. Except here it's the Buddha himself rather than the Venerable Ananda who approaches the wanderers. And so one morning the Buddha dresses and takes his bowl and extra robe and begins to enter Rajagaha in order to walk for alms. But then it's still too early, he realizes it's still too early to walk for alms. And so he thinks to go to one of the parks where the wanderers, the ascetics from the other sects, would regularly congregate. And at that time there was a famous wanderer named Sakaludai living in that park. And so at the time when the Buddha approaches the park, then the wanderers are sitting together and they're speaking with very loud and <clears throat> very loud voice, making a great uproar and talking about all of these pointless things like politics, robbers, um, cities, towns, clothes, perfumes, food, and so on. And so as the Buddha approaches, then the wanderer Sakaludai sees him coming in the distance and he tells his followers to be quiet, not to make any noise, in order that the Buddha might approach them. And so when the Buddha arrives after their preliminary exchange of greetings, then the Buddha asks him what was the subject that they were discussing. And then Sakalodai, apparently he's too <laughs> embarrassed to tell the Buddha about the subject of the discussion. So he says, just let that be, it doesn't matter very much. But uh, we could speak about that later. But then he brings up another topic of discussion, something that was of great importance to him. And he says that recently, a number of monks and Brahmins had been sitting together speaking when they were discussing this fact that suddenly, it seems just through sheer coincidence, six of these famous spiritual teachers of the time had all taken up residence in the state of Magadha, the states of Anga and Magadha. These were two states right next to each other. And so they consider that it's a great gain for the people of Magadha that they have these famous teachers, these famous ascetics, all living within a very circumscribed area. And then he mentions the names of these six teachers, actually there are seven teachers, the Buddha and the six rival teachers. The first six of the heads of the different schools of philosophy and spiritual practice that existed in the Ganges Valley at that time, outside the fold of orthodox Brahmanism. And the first six of these were 
they're always referred to in the suttas by a group name as the six teachers, the Chatsatara in Pali. And their doctrines are often described in the suttas as being in some way rival teachings to the Buddha's own doctrine. And the Buddha has often criticized them severely. The first of these six teachers is named Purana Kasapa. Purana Kasapa was the one who taught the doctrine that we discussed two weeks ago, the doctrine of non-action. It's called the Kiriyavada. This is the doctrine that there's no harm or evil in killing, stealing, um, torturing others, tormenting others. That if one person goes along one side of the river Ganges, killing, slaying, tormenting, for him there's no evil done, no accumulation of evil. If another person goes along the other side of the river Ganges, giving away gifts, even worth millions and millions, for him there's no benefit, no merit is done. Okay, then there was the teacher Mukali Gosala. He was the teacher of the doctrine called the doctrine of non-causality, that there's no cause or reason for the defilement of beings, no cause or reason for the purification of beings. Then there is Ajita Kesa Kambala. He taught the doctrine of materialism, that a person consists only of the four elements, and when the body dies, then the four elements just break up, and each element returns to its own source, and there's no survival in any way after death, no karma, no retribution in the karma. Okay, then there's Pakura Kachayana. He was the one who taught this doctrine of, called the doctrine of the seven bodies, that the person consists of these seven bodies, the four elements, pleasure, pain, and I think the soul is the seventh. And that when, even if one kills a person, then nothing is really killed because the soul is freed from the body and goes on to another body and all one does <laughs> is break up this temporary combination of the elements. Okay, then the fifth teacher, Sanjaya Bailataputta, he taught this kind of very radical skepticism that it's impossible to know any definite answer to any of the great questions, whether there's existence after death, whether the world is eternal or non-eternal, whether there's good or bad actions and the result of good or bad actions. For Sanjaya, these were questions which could never be answered by the human mind. And so he said to attempt to offer any answer to them is just foolishness. What we have to do is maintain a kind of impartial, skeptical attitude towards all answers to those questions. <coughs> and then the sixth teacher is Niganta Nataputta. This is Mahavira, the founder, or at least the chief teacher of the Jains. Okay, and besides the six outside teachers, 
there is the Rikus Gautama, that is the Buddha. And each of these is described by the same terms as being the head of an order, a Sangha, a community of followers, the head of a group, teacher of a group, one who is well known and famous and regarded by many people as a holy man, as a sadhu, sadhu, the sage, holy person. But even though these six other teachers were regarded as very highly, were very highly venerated and regarded as holy, the um, Sakaludai points out that there was some actually dissension amongst their ranks of followers for each of these other six teachers. For example, he points out in the case of Purana Kasapa. <coughs> Even though many people regard him as a saint, yet his own disciples sometimes do not honor and venerate him and even speak to him disrespectfully. And he mentions an incident that took place one time when Purnakasapa was teaching the, his doctrine to an assembly with many of his hundreds of followers were in that assembly. And then a certain disciple of his started complaining protesting while Purnakasapa was teaching. And he said, it seems that one of the members of the assembly wanted to ask a question of Purna. And so this disciple said, Sirs, do not ask Purna this question. He doesn't, know the, he doesn't know the answer to that question. Instead, you should ask the question to me. I'll, I will be able to answer that question. And then when this was said, Purnakasapa tried to silence this rebellious disciple. And he waved his arms around and he said, Be quiet, don't make any noise. They aren't asking you, they're asking us. I will answer them. But then even though Kasapa spoke in that way, still some of his disciples rebelled against him they rejected him and said that you don't understand this doctrine, we're the ones who understand this doctrine, and then they criticized him in a variety of ways. And so in this way he points out that even though Purnakasapa was admired by so many people, even his own disciples sometimes didn't show him great respect. And the same statement, the same kind of events happened in the case of each of the other teachers, Makali Gosala and so on, right through to Nikantanata Putra. Each of those was actually scorned and ridiculed by their own disciples. But in the case of the recluse Gotama, the Buddha, this did not happen. Not only was the Buddha regarded very highly and venerated by his disciples, 
But whenever he would teach the Dhamma to his disciples, then all his disciples would listen very attentively, completely absorbed in his discourse. And the speaker points out that on one occasion when the Buddha was teaching, even to several hundred people, just one of the disciples in the audience just coughed in order to clear his throat. And then one of his fellow monks nudged him and told him, be quiet, don't make any noise, the Blessed One is teaching the Dhamma. So in this case, it said that when the Buddha was teaching, there would be complete silence amongst those who were listening. And then he gives a very nice simile to illustrate the mood in the mind of the listeners when the Buddha is speaking. He says it's just like when there's a group of people at a marketplace, where there's a crossroads in a marketplace, and there might be a stall where they press honey, where they collect the honey and pour the honey. And it might be in that case there's a merchant who's pouring the honey, and when the people are waiting for the honey to be poured, they'll all be watching him pour the honey from his ladle into the bottles. And everybody will be standing, watching, watching, in complete silence, waiting for the honey to be poured into the bottle. Nobody is speaking, everybody is just watching the honey pour out from the ladles just slowly, slowly into the bottle. And only when all of the bottle, when all of the honey has been poured from the ladle into the bottle, then people will relax and start speaking again. And so when people are listening to the Buddha speak, there's complete silence prevails, and they're just listening eagerly, trying to absorb the Buddha's words one after another. And then Udayi goes on and he says that in the case of the Buddha, if there should be disciples who should fall away from the monk's life, monk disciples, who decide to give up the training and return to the lay life, even they never speak critically about the Buddha or about his teaching. Instead, they will continue to praise the Buddha, to regard him highly, to respect the Dhamma and the Sangha, and instead they will just blame themselves and say that it was our fault, we didn't have sufficient merit to continue to live as monks, and um, if they give up the monk's life, then they may even go they might they'll definitely continue to be supporters of the Buddha and the Sangha and sometimes they will even go to work in the monastery and to become monastery attendants. Okay, now when Udayi makes this statement, then the Buddha asks him a question. He asks him, what are the qualities, the virtues, that you perceive in me, that you recognize in me, on account of which you think 
my disciples respect, revere, and venerate me and continue to live in dependence on me. And so the Buddha wants to get from Udayi's point of view what are the particular qualities that Udayi respects and regards highly in the Buddha. And the Buddha, I think, is drawing these questions out of him, or drawing these answers out of him by his question, in order, because he foresees that Udayi will give wrong answers. <laughs> and by giving wrong answers, then he will open up an opportunity for the Buddha to explain the right answer to, those que- to that question. And so Udayi says that there are five qualities that I see in the Buddha. And because of these five qualities, I assume that his disciples venerate him and revere him and live in dependence on him. First, is that the Buddha eats little and speaks in praise of eating little. The second is that the Buddha is content with any kind of robe and praises contentment with any kind of robe. Third is that he is content with any kind of alms food and praises contentment with any kind of alms food. Then he is content with any kind of lodging, any kind of dwelling place and speaks in praise of this. And fifth, that the Blessed One dwells in seclusion and speaks in praise of dwelling in seclusion. Okay, so these are the five qualities that Udayi sees in the Buddha, the five virtuous qualities. And what is it that all of these five qualities have in common? What is the actual basis for which Udayi regards the Buddha with this respect and veneration, the common quality of those five virtues. What is it? Excuse me? Well, maybe that doesn't go quite far enough. Excuse me? Not humility, no. A simp- I would say even more than a simple lifestyle, they're basically ascetic qualities. And so it seems that Udayi would be one who had a high regard for an austere ascetic life, and he made that sort of the basis for, perhaps for his own teaching. And this was what the quality that he thought was the most important in a renunciant or a, a recluse in a monk. And so he thought that the whole purpose of the religious life is just to develop these austere ascetic qualities and the one who is foremost in these ascetic qualities would be worthy of the highest respect and veneration. But now the Buddha is going to first point out the faults in this answer of Udayi by showing that they lead to certain absurd conclusions or contradictory conclusions, unacceptable conclusions. Because in the case of each of them, 
the Buddha has disciples who surpass him in that particular respect. First, he says that in regard to eating little, if you think that this is a supreme quality, then I have some disciples who eat only the amount of food that you could put in the shell of a belly food, a builder food. And so they might eat only once a day, just a little bit of rice and curries, just enough to go into the shell of a belly food. Whereas the Buddha says, sometimes I will eat a complete alms bowl of food even more. Because the Buddha goes to outside dhanas, alms offerings, and so he will have to, to please the people, he will accept their offerings of food, and he doesn't make a special point of trying to show that he's an extreme ascetic by reducing the content of his food. He will take a moderate amount of food, enough to sustain himself, but he doesn't make a special point of trying deliberately to reduce the intake of food. <coughs> okay, then the Buddha is speaking to Udayi, if you think that I should be venerated and respected because I'm content with any kind of robe, then there are some disciples of mine who go even further than myself in that respect. Now in the time of the Buddha, originally when the Buddha founded the Sangha, it was the general practice for the monks just to collect pieces of cloth that had been discarded, particularly the cloths that had been used to wrap the bodies of corpses, and which were, when the corpses were thrown away in the charnel ground, then the cloth would be left there, and then the ascetics would come and they would take that cloth, cut it up into pieces, stitch them together, and then dye them in order to make a robe. That's why they call this cloth Pangsukula Chivra. It is the cloth which comes from the dusty or particularly from the charnel ground. But as time went on, as the Sangha became well respected amongst the people and acquired a large body of lay followers, then lay people wanted to offer ready-made robes to the monks. The first one to make that offering was the Buddha's physician, Jivaka. And so the Buddha, out of compassion for the lay people, he gave that allowance so that the monks, if they wanted to, would be permitted to accept what's called the Hapadichi, which means robes that are already prepared by lay people and offered to the Sangha. And so the Buddha said that those monks who want to can continue to observe the practice of using the rag robes, robes made from discarded pieces of cloth. And those who want to accept householders' chivara could accept the robes offered by householders. And it seems the Buddha himself would sometimes accept robes offered by householders. But there would be disciples of the Buddha who specialized in dutanga, in the ascetic practices, and they would make a vow never to accept any robe ready-made by householders, but they would use exclusively robes made from discarded pieces of cloth, the Pamzukula Chiva. 
And so the Buddha says that if you think I should be praised because of my contentment with any kind of robe, then it is my disciples who should be put even on a higher position than myself. Because I have disciples who are just constant users of these rag robes, the refuse rag wearers. And they will collect rags from the charnel ground, from rubbish heaps that are thrown away outside of shops, and then they make them into patched robes and wear them. But I myself sometimes use robes made from very fine, high-quality material. And so this is not the reason why I'm venerated by my disciples. Okay, then the Buddha says, the third point you make is that you think I'm respected and venerated because I'm content with any kind of alms food and praise as contentment. In that case, again, you would have to regard some of my disciples as more worthy than I am. Because here now, again, when the Buddha started the Sangha, it was the general practice for all the monks to gather their food by going on Amtran, by Pindapanta. They would just go once a day in the morning to the houses in the village, collect sufficient food for their needs, and then bring it back to the... At that time there was not even a monastery, they would just bring it back to their park, and then they would eat it in the park. And they would collect, go to houses where they were not expected, where people maybe just had some scraps left over from the day before, which they would hurriedly prepare and give to the monks. And sometimes they would just get pieces of you know, potatoes and bread and bananas and just leftovers. Sometimes they would even have to go hungry if people didn't have any food. And so the way of practice was very difficult. But then as time went on and the Buddha acquired a larger lay following, then the lay people wanted to make offerings to the Sangha, to bring food to the monastery, to offer it there, to invite the Buddha and his monks to their houses for alms. And the Buddha gave the allowance for monks to accept invitations and for lay people to bring the food to the monasteries and even for a kind of organized Danas rotation system to be set up. And so the Buddha himself and many of his close disciples like Sariputta, Mahabhogalana, they would accept invitations to go to the houses. But there would be other monks who were dedicated to the Tutangas, the ascetic practices, who would make firm vow never to go accept invitations but to go exclusively on alms round. The most famous and eminent monk in that practice was Venerable Mahakasapa. He was the chief and the leader in the ascetic practices. And so even when Mahakasapa was staying with the Buddha, when people would come and they would invite the whole Sangha to come for the alms offering, everyone would go except Mahakasapa and maybe some of his immediate disciples. They would stay behind and they would just go on alms round because of that firm vow never to accept invitations. 
So now the fourth quality for which Udayi respects and venerates the Buddha and thinks that his disciples venerate him is because the, he thinks the Buddha or the monk Gotama is content with any kind of lodging, any sanasana, and he praises contentment with any kind of dwelling place. And the Buddha now points out that if that is the basis, your basis for venerating the Buddha, then you should regard some of my disciples as even superior than myself. Now again, in the very early days of the sasana, when the Buddha was just living with a small community of monks, there were no established monasteries. The monks would just live in parks, in forests, in caves, um, under the tree, wherever they could find a kind of just a suitable lodging which would protect them from the elements. But as time went on, this was fairly early, perhaps it was even very soon after the first Vasa, this would be when the Buddha was living in Raj, Rajagaha, there was a brother-in-law of Anatta Pindika. He saw that the monks were living in very difficult conditions and the idea came to him to build a, monast- a monastic residence for the monks. And so he came to the Buddha and asked for the Buddha's permission to build a monastery and the Buddha gave his consent. And so then this householder, with he got a team of construction workers and they built many kudis with a large meeting hall, with, with latrines, with um, a preaching hall, with all sorts of amenities and facilities. And thereafter the Buddha would allow monasteries to be built in all of the major towns and cities where he took up residence. But there would be some disciples who would remain firm in their determination to live under very trying conditions, very austere conditions. And they would make an aditana determination never to live in a residence even with a roof over their head. Not even in a very simple kuri except for the four months of the rainy season when it would be impossible to live without some kind of shelter. And in that case, the Buddha actually lay down a rule that all monks will have to take residence in a shelter during the rainy season. But apart from that, during the dry part of the year, there would be monks who would live exclusively under, at the foot of a tree. Their whole shelter would just be the (coughs) branches and leaves of the tree. There would be monks who would go to live in the open field that they wouldn't even have the shade of a tree to protect them from the sun. There would be some monks who would go to live in the cemeteries. And so in this way there would be monks who continue to observe these very austere practices. And the Buddha says that if you regard me highly and venerate me, if you think my disciples venerate me because I'm living I'm content with any kind of lodging. In that case, 
then they should venerate some of my fellow monks even more highly than myself. Because the Buddha says, sometimes I will accept, I will go to live in these monasteries in a gabled mansion, like the maybe the Gandakuti in the Jaitapana monastery, in the Bamboo Grove monastery, the Buddha had which would have the people would build quite exquisite lodgings for the Buddha and smaller kudis for the other monks, while those who are observing the austere practices are often the forests, the cemeteries, the open fields, in caves, in rock shelters, living under quite difficult conditions. And so the Buddha says that that is not the reason for venerating me. Okay, then the fifth reason that Udayi has given is that he thinks that the Buddha's disciples venerate him because he lives in seclusion and praises living in seclusion. <coughs> Again, the Buddha points out the same principle, that if that is the reason for venerating me, then some of my disciples should be regarded more highly because some of my disciples live constantly withdrawn into the forests, the jungles, very distant places, remote, even from, from, very, from primitive village communities. And they come into the Sangha only once every two weeks on the Uposita day for the recital of the Patimoka the code of the training rules. But the Buddha says, I myself am constantly surrounded by monks and nuns, by men and women lay disciples, even by kings, by ministers, by the followers of other sects and their disciples. So if you think my disciples are venerating me because I live in seclusion, then it's my disciples who should be regarded more highly, for they live even more secluded than I do myself. Okay, so then the Buddha now sums up the whole point of this discussion by saying that it is not because of these five qualities that my disciples honor, respect, revere, and venerate me. But now the Buddha points pulls up five other qualities and he says that it's because of these five qualities that my disciples venerate me and these are the true reasons for showing me this respect and veneration. Okay, now we're in the sutta in paragraph number 10. Look 10 and we come to 11. The first of these is that the Buddha observes what's called the higher virtue, the Adisira. That he possesses the supreme aggregate of virtue. Here, the qualities that make up this virtue are not elaborated, but we have this fully elaborated in the Brahmajala Sutta, in the Dikanikaya. In that text, the Buddha mentions the basic qualities that the Buddha observes, abstaining from taking life, 
from stealing, from any kind of celibacy, from speaking falsehood, from slanderous speech, from harsh speech, from idle chatter, and so on. He has many hundreds and hundreds of qualities that make up the training in the higher virtue. <coughs> okay, the second supreme quality of the Buddha is called here knowledge and vision. It's jnana dasana. And the Buddha explains that my disciples esteem me for my excellent knowledge and vision. They say that when the recluse Gautama says that he knows something, then he truly knows. And when he says, I see something, he truly sees. He teaches the doctrine, the Dhamma, on the basis of his own direct knowledge, not through speculation, not through reasoning or logic, but because he knows and sees it for himself. And he teaches the Dhamma with a sound basis, that is, with reasons behind it, with support, with foundation. And he teaches in a convincing manner, in a way which dispels doubt and arouses confidence. Okay, so all of these, these factors taken together, this forms the higher knowledge and vision for which the Buddha is respected. Then the third reason why the disciples venerate the Buddha is because he possesses the higher wisdom, Adipanya. And this is it's explained here in a rather interesting way. The Buddha says not only that he is wise and possesses the supreme aggregate of wisdom, but he says it is impossible that he should not foresee the future courses of doctrine, or that he should not be able to confute with reasons the current doctrines of others. And this seems to mean that the Buddha has first He's offered refutations of the different rival spiritual systems that existed at his time. We find this in the text. The Buddha's offered arguments against some of these so-called heretical views, the views of materialism, the view of non-action, the view of fatalism. And in the Brahmajala Sutta, the Buddha has classified all the different philosophical views into this very complicated system of 62 doctrines which are all based upon the wrong assumptions of a self and of a world as existing somehow outside that self. And by laying down this scheme of 62 wrong views, the Buddha has provided a kind of scheme for discovering any kind of wrong views that might arise even in the distant future and for seeing the faults and errors in those views. And so in this way the Buddha has established guidelines for determining what is 
correct view and what is wrong view. Okay, so this is the third reason that the Buddha, the, Bu- the third reason the Buddha points out why his disciples venerate him. Okay, the fourth reason is because of his knowledge and understanding and his explanation of the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha says that when my disciples have met with suffering and become victims of suffering, then they come to me and they ask me about the Noble Truth of Suffering and then I explain to them the Noble Truth of Suffering and I satisfy their minds with my explanation. Or they come to me and they ask about the cause of suffering, about the cessation of suffering, about the way to the cessation of suffering. And I satisfy their minds with my explanation to their questions. Actually, the way the Buddha phrases this, it gives the impression that these disciples come to him and they say, what is the noble truth of suffering? What is the truth of the origin of suffering? But it doesn't really work out in that way. But what happens is that the disciples, or actually future disciples, come to the Buddha overwhelmed by suffering. And they phrase their questions in ways which gives the Buddha an opening for explaining the Four Noble Truths. For example, somebody might come oppressed by suffering and say, and just weep and lament and say that I'm in such a miserable condition, how can I get out of the suffering? Then the Buddha will use that situation as an opportunity and will start by explaining the nature of suffering and then bring in the other three noble truths. Sometimes a person will come directly and say, what I'm oppressed by suffering, what is the cause and reason for my suffering? And in that case, the Buddha will explain the four truths. Sometimes a person will come and say, what is the end of suffering? Is there any release from suffering? Then the Buddha will explain first the third noble truth, then bring in the other three noble truths. And then sometimes a person will come and just say, what is the way to release from suffering? And then the Buddha will explain the Noble Eightfold Path, and then from there he will explain the other three Noble Truths. <coughs> okay, so now this is the fourth reason why the disciples venerate the Buddha. And now with the fifth quality, this gives a Buddha the opportunity for presenting almost a complete compendium, a complete outline of his entire system of practice. And this is, these are all grouped together under the heading of the way to develop wholesome qualities. And the Buddha will explain all the different sets of practices that make up the training for enlightenment. And he begins with a kind of fixed set of groups, of seven groups that come together very frequently within the suttas. 
And these groups of seven or seven sets are all grouped together under the heading of the 37 factors that lead to enlightenment. Okay, now the 37 bodhi dhammas. The word bodhi means enlightenment and paka has the sense of wing. But pakya means what is on the wing of enlightenment or what is on the side of enlightenment. So these are 37 factors of training, factors of practice which lead to enlightenment and which also constitute enlightenment. So one could say on the one hand that the practice of these factors is a way of getting closer and closer to enlightenment but when one actually reaches enlightenment and investigates what is that experience of enlightenment it is also a rather complex mental experience which is made up of these 37 factors. Okay, the 37 factors are grouped into these seven sets which are actually very, very intricately interwoven which overlap and interlock with each other in very complex ways. We have first the four foundations of mindfulness, then the four right efforts or four right endeavors, four right kinds of striving, and four bases for spiritual power. Although the Buddha speaks about these 37 requisites of enlightenment, the 37 are obtained just from a very small number of individual mental factors. Individual mental qualities which operate or function in different ways according to the different sets in which they are included. For example, we will begin just with the first set, the four foundations of mindfulness. Now in terms of mental factors, the four foundations of mindfulness really reduce to one basic mental factor. That mental factor is we call sati or mindfulness itself. So the key factor in the foundations of mindfulness is simply mindfulness, sati. And in the second set, the four right efforts, again, we have one mental factor, 
which is working in four different ways. What is that one mental factor in the case of right effort? It's the mental factor of energy, virya. In the case of the four bases of spiritual power, the way the factors are laid out is somewhat different from the first two. Here we have four distinct mental factors, each of which works in a particular way to achieve the same end. The end of these four mental factors will be samadhi or concentration. But the four factors that are involved will be desire, energy or effort, mind, which is the power of consciousness, and then investigation, which is the factor of wisdom. At the beginning now, I'm just giving a kind of general overview of these 37 factors of enlightenment. As we go on with the class, then we'll take each group in detail. Okay, so here we have four factors. And these are distinct factors. It's unlike the case of the four foundations of mindfulness, where we have one factor, mindfulness, which works with four different objects. The case of right effort, one factor, energy, applied in four different ways. But in the case of the four bases of spiritual power, these are four different factors of mind, each of which is used to achieve the same end. That end is samadhi or concentration. In the case of five faculties and five powers, we have five different factors involved. These five factors are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And then the five powers are actually identical with the five faculties. The Buddha has taken these same five mental factors. In one group he calls them faculties because they perform one kind of function in that group. In the other group, the five powers, he calls them bala or powers because they perform another function. We will explain these different functions as we go along. But one can see that there's just a cluster of, of mental states, a cluster of qualities which are being used in different ways. It's just like having a single person, one man, who might be working in an office and he might be the accountant and also the treasurer and the secretary doing different jobs on different occasions. Then with the seven factors of enlightenment, we have seven different factors, but we find amongst them mindfulness, 
wisdom, energy, and concentration. Same factors that we find elsewhere in the list. And then there are three new ones amongst the seven factors of enlightenment. And then with the Noble Eightfold Path, we have eight factors, eight mental factors, but they include wisdom, energy, mindfulness, and concentration. So when we take a kind of overview of the entire set of 37 factors of enlightenment, I find that four qualities seem to come out repeatedly in different sets. These four qualities are energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And this seems to indicate the basic tenor of the Buddha's system of training. That one begins with a kind of faith, trust, or confidence in the teaching. Then through energy, one applies oneself to the teaching. But what is it that one applies oneself to? Basically, to the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is energy working together with sati, with mindfulness. As mindfulness develops through energetic effort, then it leads to samadhi, to concentration. And then by investigating the nature of things with a concentrated mind, then one develops insight or wisdom. So in that way, the factor of wisdom comes to maturity. But the Buddha doesn't just say that there are these four factors, but rather he presents his system of training in these different groups, seven groups, which he uses on different occasions with different sets of disciples in order to show, in order to be able to reach a great variety of people to be trained and to give them the teaching in the ways which will be most suitable for their own development. Okay, this is just a general overview of this 37 factors of enlightenment. But as we go on next week, we will investigate them in greater detail. Okay, if there is any questions on anything covered in the talk this evening, then please feel free to ask to ask. Powerful way of teaching. Uh strengthen the body and Sapati Hari. So yeah, convincing is actually a rather weak word there. It's hard to find a really adequate um, English word. Maybe striking or compelling would be, <laughs> would be a better rendering of that. Sapatihariya means like hitting against or striking.
Okay, any, any further questions? Okay, then we will stop.